Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so I have us attempting to get through Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8 tonight. That's my plan. We'll see if we hold to that plan. The reason we're going to look at all three chapters is because they all deal with the same person, Gideon. Okay, so Gideon is the next judge, and his story, his um, narrative lasts over seven, or six, seven, and eight, over three chapters. Okay, so let's just start in Judges chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, what I'm calling Israel's great distress. Now, before we even start, what has been Israel's pattern over and over that we've seen so far? Good, bad, good, bad. Okay, so what's the specific pattern? They fall into idolatry. They fall into rebellion. What happens? They get taken over by a foreign country. They cry out to the Lord for help. Is it true repentance? No. The Lord, in His grace, He doesn't have to respond, but in His grace, He gives them a judge or a deliverer or a military leader. And what does that military leader do? Defeats the enemy, sometimes in weird ways. And then the land has peace for X amount of years. And then what happens? It starts all over again. Okay, so let's... Look at chapter 6, verse 1, and almost every chapter starts the same way, okay? So here we go, verses 1 through 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Have we not seen that? Okay, that's, that's the same refrain over and over again. People of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian, Seven years, the Midianites, okay? And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Okay, this is by far the most graphic depiction of Israel's distress. What's going on? They have to live in caves. They, they really can't even go out and do their livestock. They can't even plant crops because what happens? Every time they go out with their livestock, every time they try to plant crops, what happens? The Midianites come, and how is it described? Like locusts come and devour them. And so they are in great, great distress. And look at verse 6. In verse 6, the word translated, they were brought very low. Notice where it says there, Israel was brought very low. Does anybody have a different translation besides very low? What does it say? Impoverished, Impoverished brought low. Metaphorically, 
It means that they were not only economically impoverished because of their crops being destroyed and their livestock being destroyed, but it also carries with it kind of a a wordplay. It also means that they were at their lowest point emotionally as a nation in the face of Midianite oppression. They were brought low. They were living in caves. They were oppressed. Their crops were being destroyed. Their livestock's being destroyed. And so what are they going to do? You guys don't even need to read ahead. What are they going to do? They are going to what? Cry out to the Lord. Okay, so let's look at um, verses 7 through 10. God's word of grace. Okay, so verses 7 through 10. So it's going to be no surprise. You guys are going to be pros reading the book of Judges by the time we get done here. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Okay, what's the irony? Okay, if you read verse 7, Israel cried out to the Lord. What are you expecting to happen in verse 8? The Lord raised up a spirit-anointed deliverer. Is that what happens? No. What does it say? Ironically, Israel needs deliverance from oppression. What does God, instead of sending a mighty warrior, what does God do? God sends a preacher. Okay? He sends a prophet of the Lord to give them a word. That's probably not what Israel wanted to hear. We want to deliver. We want, we want help from the, the military oppression. We want someone to come and go push out the Midianites. We don't want a prophet to come tell us. Why do they need a prophet? Why do they need a preacher? They needed to understand why they are in great distress before God will deliver them by great distress. What's the message that the prophet preaches to them in verses 8 through 10? He basically says to them, I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord. I delivered you out of the Egyptian bondage. At one point, way back in your history, you were in bondage, just like this, under the Egyptian taskmasters. And what did I do through Moses? I delivered you. I parted the Red Sea. I gave you the promised land. You occupied the promised land. I've been gracious to you. I've delivered you. I've been your God. I've been your Savior. But, look at the very last thing there. What's the very last part of verse 10? But you have not obeyed my voice. Okay? What would you expect to happen next if you were God? If you were God, what would you do next? This is the last straw, Israel. I've sent my prophet to you. He's given you a word of judgment. Now here comes fire from heaven on Israel. Is that what God does? No. God is going to actually appoint a savior, a judge, a deliverer in Gideon. Which when you read the Old Testament, here's the thing you should be saying. Not, man, that's such a mean God in the Old Testament. 
you should be saying, man, that's such a gracious God in the Old Testament. Because how often did He put up with Israel? Over and over again. Why? Because God is their Lord, their God. He's the, the covenant God, Yahweh, who's entered into a binding covenant with the nation of Israel. He loves them. He's not going to abandon them. That's why Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is loving to His people, the Israelites. He's not going to abandon them. Now, that doesn't mean He's not going to discipline them. What have we seen in the book of Judges? Does God discipline His children? Yes, Lamentations 3.33. He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. He afflicts them, but sometimes it pains God to do so. He's going to discipline His people. So here's what happens. The pattern we see over and over in Judges is that they get into rebellion, they get into idolatry, they are oppressed. This time it's by the Midianites. They cry out to the Lord. This time the Lord sends a prophet to give them a message saying, I delivered you in the past. You've disobeyed my voice. We would expect God to say, okay, it's over, Israel. You're done. But God's going to raise up Gideon. Okay? So let's look at verses 11 through 24, chapter 6 of Judges. God's promise to equip the Israelites. Okay? Verse 11. Actually, let's go back to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a type of tree, at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now let me just tell you why he's hiding out doing the wheat. Okay, back then, what you would do is you would want to get on a high place, like a high plane, and you would take and you would crush the heads and stalks of the wheat. And what you would do is you'd take a winnowing fork and you'd throw it up in the air and the chaff would blow away and the wheat kernels would stay. That's how you separated the wheat from the chaff. And it's better to do it up on a high plane because of the wind. Why Gideon is hiding out in a wine press? He's probably hiding out in a cave. Why is he hiding out? You guys tell me. What have we just seen? I'll give you a hint. Go back and look at verse 4. Why, why is he hiding out doing the... Doing the, um, the, the um, that's the word I'm looking for. Harvesting the wheat. Why is he hiding out? Yeah, the, the Midianites have come like locusts. They're destroying everything. So he's a coward. So, I mean, we'll just call him a coward. We'll call him for what he is. He's, he's, they've got to they've have livestock. They've got to have produce. They've got to make a living. They've got to eat. And so he's down there hiding in the wine press, sifting the wheat. Okay? But the angel of the Lord shows up to him. And look at verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, you should stop right there and be like, oh, wow, Gideon's a mighty man of valor? Um, he's actually hiding out down there, hiding from the, the Midianites. But the angel says he's a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? 
And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rocks and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abizirites. Okay, verse 12 is the key. What does... Verse 12 say, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. Do you guys have extra handouts? Did you get a handout? You got one? Okay, good. I'm Sean, by the way. Josh, Josh nice to meet you. Glad, glad to have you tonight. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Okay, in a sense, God is able to save the Israelites. But what's been the pattern over and over again with them? Their sin has always put them in a position of being oppressed, being oppressed. And so, how does Gideon protest God's plan or God's call on him to deliver the people. What does Gideon say? Well, look at verse 13. Please, sir, if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? Didn't you just tell us that he brought us up out of Egypt, but the Lord's forsaken us. The Lord's forgotten about us. Here's what Gideon does. Instead of acknowledging their own responsibility for their present oppression, Gideon blames God. He serves as an example of those who, quote-unquote, forgot what God had done in the past on behalf of Israel. What's he saying? If God's really with us, if God's for us, if God's our covenant God, then why is all this happening to us? He must have abandoned us. He must have forgotten about us. God's, God's not in the picture. Why are, you, why are you saying God's with us? Okay. Let me just ask you guys a question for us. Here's an issue for us to think about. Sometimes for us who know our Bibles, we have good theology about God's character. Sometimes do we not often fail to trust God in our present reality because we forgot what He's done for us on the ha- on, on, in the past? Do we sometimes... You will never say this out loud, but you've probably thought it. I'm not really sure if God's there. Okay, some of you are shaking your heads. I wasn't getting you to shake your heads, but some of you probably have said sometime in, in the dark night of the soul, maybe you said, you know what? What I'm going through, God, God's not really with me. God's not here. 
And for a moment, what do you do? You quote-unquote forget how God has come to your aid in the past. And so I think sometimes we can have head knowledge of who God is. We can believe all the, 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 what the Bible says. But when we're in the midst of struggle, when we're in the midst of pain, when we're in the midst of oppression, we can sometimes fool ourselves into thinking God's not there. Which Is that true? No, it's not true. God is there. It's just sometimes we forget His past faithfulness, and that does not give us encouragement for His future faithfulness. Now, what does Gideon say? Why are you picking me? Okay. Look at verse 15. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Okay, so he's like, okay, I'm, I'm from the tribe Manasseh. And my family is like the, the least in that clan or least in that, that tribe. And I am the least in my father's house. You've got to pick somebody else. If you, God, you must, have, you must have got the wrong person because I'm the least. I'm unqualified. It kind of reminds you of what Moses said. Remember when God called him to go deliver the Israelites? And Moses is like, I can't do that. I, I'm, I've got a speech impediment, um, all these different excuses. But then what does God say to him again? Verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Twice, God says to Gideon, I will be with you. I want to show you just five verses where God says that to different people in the Bible. Okay, Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. That's God speaking. I am with you. Genesis 46, 4. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. That's speaking to Jacob. The previous passage was speaking to Isaac. Okay, what about God speaking to Moses? Exodus 3.12, he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, so God says to Isaac, I'm going to be with you. He says to Jacob, I'm going to be with you. He says to Moses, I'm going to be with you. He says to Joshua, what's he say to Joshua? 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Okay? I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. What does God say to Gideon here? I will be with you. What were Jesus' last words to us in the Gospel of Matthew? At the end of the Great Commission, what did Jesus say in Matthew 28, 20? Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So Gideon is raised up as a deliverer. He protests, but God says to him, you may be weak, You may be powerless. You may think you can't do this, but I am with you. Okay? And then what is, what happens here? Gideon does this. He still doesn't quite believe the angel of the Lord, does he? He's like, wait here and let me go out and, and give you some food. So he goes and he brings the food out and puts it on the rock. And what happens when he puts it on the rock? Puts the cake on the rock, pours the broth over, and what happens? The angel of the Lord hits it and what? Fire. Okay, which means that it's almost as if, like when God accepts a sacrifice in the Old Testament, how does He show He accepts it? You burn it with fire. Okay? 
And so it takes a little while for Gideon to get convinced that God is with him. But notice what he calls the place. Look at verse 24. Yahweh Shalom or Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. What did Israel need most? Peace from their enemies. What what do we look at verse 1 through 6? They're being oppressed. Look at verse 6. They were brought very low. They were at constant anxiety, constant um, oppression. They needed peace from the Midianites. But ultimately, what did Israel need? Spiritually, what did they need? They needed peace with God. They needed forgiveness from their rebellious idolatry. So before God delivers Israel, He raises up an inadequate, weak, protesting, cowardly Gideon. And then He's going to ask Gideon to do something that's going to even be more testing of his courage. Okay, so... Let's look at part four here in chapter six, God's demand for allegiance. Okay, let's look at verses 25 through 35. What does God ask Gideon to do? What's the point? Before we read this, what's been the problem in Israel? Go back to verse one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What, how did that evil manifest itself? What were they doing that was evil? Everything, but what particularly were they doing? They were idolatry. They were going after Baal, who was the male god, and Ashtaroth, which was the female god. Okay? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But their biggest sin was idolatry. Okay? So let's see what God tells them to do. Let's pick up in verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who's done this thing? After, and after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. In order for God to save Israel, Israel must not have divided allegiances. 
You cannot serve Baal and Yahweh at the same time. What does Jesus say in Matthew six twenty four? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So God says to Gideon, go destroy the altars. And he does, but how does he do it? He does it at night. Why does he do it at night? It tells you flat out. He was afraid. Okay? Now, you're somewhat disappointed in Gideon because he does it, right? But, like, it's not real quick motivation to do it out of obedience for God. It's more like, okay, I'll do this, God, but if if you're making me do this, I'm going to do it at night so nobody knows it's me. Well, he took ten men with him. This was clearly a situation of fear of man. Now, let me just, let's just stop and talk about this. What is fear of man or fear of woman or fear of people? We can use different words for fear of man. Peer pressure is a word. Um, yeah, fear of man. You are afraid of what other people are going to say about you, what they're going to do to you, how they're going to perceive you, how you're going to be seen in their eyes. And so you will make strange, weird decisions to protect yourself so that you don't have to be uncomfortable. And it all stems from fearing people. Okay? And Proverbs says this, Proverbs twenty nine twenty five. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Who should we fear, man or the Lord? Fear the Lord. Psalm 56, 3 through 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In the end, what can a person really do to you? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. I mean, then... Words do hurt, but at the end of the day, what if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, can't, what can somebody do to you? Nothing. Even if they kill you, Jesus says, you still go to heaven, okay? So really, we should not be motivated by fear of man, but by fear of God. Now, what happens? He, he tears them down. The, the townspeople wake up. And what do they say? Who's done this evil deed in Israel? What was the evil deed? Was the evil deed worshiping idols or was the evil deed tearing down the idols in the eyes of the townspeople? Tearing down the idols. And that's the irony. What did they want to do to Gideon? Kill him. Execute him. Stone him. So here's the irony. This is how far they had fallen into idolatry. The men of the town want to execute Gideon for tearing down the false idols when in all reality the people should have already been executed for their gross idolatry. What was the penalty for idolatry? Okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy real quick. A long quote here from Deuteronomy 13, 6-11. If your brother, the son of your mother, or the son of your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is at your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, 
which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. But you shall kill him. (laughs) That's encouraging. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of the people, you shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this is among you. Okay, so let's play this out. A friend of yours comes to you secretly and says, Hey, let's go down on the other side of the, the river. They got this Baal worship. Let's go down there and hang out and, and let's, you know, nobody's going to know. We're going to go down there and we're going to worship Baal and Ashtoreth and we're going, to, we're going to have a good time. What does the Bible here say in the Old Testament? You're supposed to kill that guy, okay? Not, I mean, obviously it's Old Testament, but really it says, if someone entices you to go after another god, you shall put him to death. You're not to hide it. You're to bring it out in the open and he's to be executed. Okay, so technically, who should have really been executed in this story? The whole town. Okay, the whole town. But they're wanting to execute Gideon for tearing things down. Now, again, what did I say about God? God is going to save Israel. And you have to ask the question, why does God continue to save Israel? Because he wants to. Okay, it's his, it's his prerogative to do so. It's that word hesed, or if you want to say it real Hebrewish, chesed. If you want to get the whole you know, spit on your neighbor, don't, don't, I don't encourage it. And we can all say hesed together, and you can spit on your neighbor. It's that. It's a strong word in the, in the Hebrew language. Um, it just means steadfast love, covenant love, tenacious love. Psalm 130, verses 7 through 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is chesed, there's steadfast love. And with him, there's plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Anytime you say, why does God do what he does? The answer is God does what he does because God has the right to do what he wants to do. But you look at this and say, why in the world does God keep coming to Israel's rescue? It's because God is in covenant faithfulness with Israel and he has steadfast love for them and he's going to fulfill his promise to them. Now, obviously, he raises up Gideon. Look at verse 34. We've seen this before with... um, Othniel, the first judge, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Okay, so he's, Gideon's been, the the angel of the Lord showed up to him. The angel of the Lord has encouraged him. He's heard the words, I am with you from God. He's seen the thing go up in flames and the spirit of the Lord has come upon him. Don't you think at that point Gideon would be ready to go fight the battle? But Gideon's still unsure. So let's read verses 36 through the end of the chapter. Gideon's need for assurance. Okay, he's still unsure. All right, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If the dew is there, if there's dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the ground then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not 
your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test you just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. Now, you've always heard the story, I'm going to put out a fleece. Okay, that's not, this is not, this is not a story teaching you how to discover God's will. Okay, actually what this is, is a sign of disbelief. It's a sign of unbelief. It's a sign of doubt. Okay. Gideon's afraid. He's the least of the clan. He's the youngest son. The angel of the Lord's come to him and said, God's going to be with you. And what more could Gideon need? Also, look at the end of the chat. Look at verses 33 through 35. We kind of skipped over that. Everybody's gathered together to help him. Somehow, something happened between, and we don't really know because the text doesn't tell us, something happened between when he... Um, well, let's back up for a moment because I think I skipped over something that, that may be not in your notes, which is kind of funny. Let's, let's back up, okay? I'm sorry to take you back in the text. You guys okay with backing up? All right, we'll put it in reverse and go back. Okay, so how does Gideon get out of not being killed? What's his dad do? His dad comes out and his dad vouches for him. What is the, what, how does the dad do it? He basically says, well, if Baal's such a strong God, can't Baal take care of himself? If Baal's as powerful God, then it's going to be found out who the, the person is. Let, let Baal fight his own battles. We don't need to put Gideon to death. If, if, if Gideon did something wrong, it'll happen to him. Baal, Baal will put him to death. Okay? So, you've got the scene where Gideon's spared. His dad comes out to his defense. And then something happens between verses 32 and verse 33 where the enemies there, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the East come together. They cross the Jordan and they're encamped. They're all ready to attack. The Spirit of the Lord's clothed Gideon. What did Gideon do? He sounded the trumpet and he sent messengers. And Manasseh, Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, all these tribes come and they're ready to help him. Okay, so he's there with the support of the people, with the Spirit of the Lord on him, with the encouragement from the angel of the Lord telling him the Lord would be with him, what more does he need? Is God's will for him unclear? I'm just asking you a question. Does he need to put out a fleece to determine what God's will is? I'm really not sure what God's telling me to do, so I'm going to put a fleece out here. No. God's been very clear. What's the purpose of the fleece? It's really kind of to test God and to kind of get more assurance. And surprisingly, God actually condescends to Gideon's foolishness and actually you know, gives him these signs. Here's a question for us. How often do we not believe the promises of God that are clearly given in the written word of Scripture when faced with God's clear commands, how often do we try to get out of obedience by, quote-unquote, looking for a sign? I've told you stories about this for years. You know, I have somebody that will come into my office, and this has happened multiple times, and they'll say, Pastor Sean, I really want to know God's will for my life. I know God's got something for me. I know there's something down the road. I know He's got a plan for me. I really want to know God's will for my life. Can you help me discover God's will for my life? And I begin to ask him questions, and I come to find out that um, 
they're living with their girlfriend and they're smoking crack cocaine and they're going to Las Vegas and getting drunk and I'm just making all this stuff. I mean, they're, they're like living in major, let's just say they're living in major sin. And I'll stop and I'll say, listen, why in the world would God give you any direction on his will specifically if you're not being obedient to what the Bible clearly says in written form? You see, a lot of people don't want to believe what the clear written directions of the Bible are. They're looking for some mystical extra direction because, you know, it's too hard to actually just read the Bible and obey it. They want like some type of, God, give me a sign of what I'm supposed to do, but they won't actually obey the written word of God. That's not the way it works. I mean, if you're not obedient to the written word of God, God's not going to really give you much more information. He may. I mean, he's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. But um, I think sometimes we tend to look for a sign besides the written word of God to avoid what God clearly says. Lord, if you don't want me to have sex with this girl right now, give me a sign. Some kind of sign, any sign. I don't see a sign. Maybe that's God's plan for me to go ahead and have sex before marriage. You didn't give me a sign. I mean, you know, I'm kind of being exaggerating here, but I think it's kind of what Gideon's doing here. Gideon has all the information. He's got the spirit of the Lord. He's got the arm. He's got the, the clans and the tribes there. He, he, he's got the assurance that God's with him. Actually, what he's doing is he's trying to test God. But here's the bottom line of chapter 6. God is patient with our sinful weakness, and he comes down in sovereign grace to deliver us from our fragile faith. Before we get on to Gideon, how often have you been there? God, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, God, you've given me all this information. I know your promises, but my faith is weak. Anybody ever had weak faith? You don't have to raise your hand. It's not the size of your faith. It's who your faith is in. You can have really itty-bitty faith, but your faith is in a big God. And so even when your faith is weak and you're frail and you're clueless and you're helpless, that's when God shines the brightest because you're not trusting in your own power. You're not trusting in your own ability. You're trusting in His grace. And God comes in those moments and gives you grace. God doesn't come and say, man, your faith is so weak. I wish you'd get your act together. What does God do? I know you're weak, and I know you don't have your act together. That's why I'm God. So I'm going to come, and I'm going to show you sovereign grace, and I'm going to equip you, and I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right, so that's chapter 6. We, we may actually get, well, we may, we may get through all these chapters tonight, 6, 7, and 8. Okay, so let's move into chapter 7. The weak, W-E-A-K, the weak battle plan. All right, so let's go into chapter 7, verses, um, let's look at verses 1 through 8. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever's fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, 
and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he set all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Okay, how many people, how many troops start out? You do the math there. 32,000. Okay, so he's, that's a pretty big army, 32,000. What does God say? What you not, now, you would not expect to hear God say this. That's way too many troops. Any general want to hear that? You've got too many troops. Why does God do this? What's their temptation in verse 2? What does God tell them is their temptation? The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites in their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand saved me. What's Israel's temptation? What's been their pattern all along? Because of their continuous idolatry and self-sufficiency, the temptation would be for them to take credit for defeating the Midianites instead of trusting in God's power and provision. If they had 32,000 men and they went in there and they wiped them out, what would they have said? Look what we did. We're a powerful army. We are awesome. We can boast in what we've done. We're all that. And God knows they're going to do that. The people of Israel were told this before they went into the promised land in Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 19. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to you, your fathers, as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warned you today that you shall surely perish. I did it. My hands have accomplished this. It is me who's done this. Now, isn't that not our temptation as well? I mean, just to be honest. What are we tempted to do? Especially, let's talk, I'm going to talk to men here. What are we tempted to do as men? I'm going to take matters into my own hand, and I'm going to do this, and I'm self-sufficient, and I don't need any help, and I'm going to get this done, and I'm going to take credit for it because I'm all that. I'm sure women, you think like that too, but I know, I know men because I am one. What is Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm going to boast in my weakness. I'm going to boast in the fact that I'm not all that. So God says, listen, the, the, first, the first thing you need to do is to just ask him, hey, if you're afraid, if you're scared, if you want to bail, go home. How many people leave? Like 22,000 people go home, which shows me that, okay, there was a lot of afraid people that were, you know, I'd rather be oppressed. I'd rather be like worried about livestock. I don't want to go fight the Midianites. So they left. So how many were left? 10,000. And God says, that's way too many. So look at verse 4. 
in the original language, the ESV, and I think I don't know what your translations would say, but um, verse four, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down the water. I will test them there for you. Does anybody else have a word besides test? Sift. The word is refine. Sift or test or refine. It's a metallurgical term used for refining ore by removing the impurities. So how's God gonna how's God gonna sift? What's the two what's the two ways you can drink water? Okay, you can go down to the river and you can do what? You can take your hand and cup it and do that. Or you can get down like a dog and get your face down and you know lick it out. Okay. Some scholars have said, well the reason that God chose those that did this was because they were more alert. They could look up and see as they're taking the water if the enemy's coming. Those that were lapping, you know, they weren't they weren't paying attention. The text doesn't really tell us that. That's really not the point. The point's the point's not really how they lapped or how they didn't lap. The point is God wants the number down to three hundred. Okay, so think about you as a military general. Okay, what's Gideon thinking already? Okay, I'm the least. First of all, how do we how we get how how do we find out who Gideon is? I'm hiding out. <laughs> An angel comes to me and says, "Hey, you're a man of valor." Who are you talking to? Oh, you mean me? I'm the least in my clan. I'm the youngest. I don't have what it takes. And then all of a sudden God says, um, you know, I'm with you. Gideon says, I don't think so. Let me do this fleece thing just to prove it. And God does it. And then God gets the troops assembled and there's 32,000. And God says, that's too many. Down to 10,000. That's too many. Okay, Gideon, you're stuck with 300. Thanks, God. That's, that's a great plan. But the point is what? If Israel's going to win the battle, it's going to be because God fought it. Now, I want you to notice something. They don't use weapons that we would consider to be military weapons. Okay, so let's look at the, the assurance for the weak battle plan. Okay? Verses um, 9 through 18. So... Everybody's sent home except for the 300. Now, God does something providential here in verses 9 through 18 in a dream. So here we go. Verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites, the Malachites, all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number and the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is none other Then the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets into the hands of all the men, and emptied jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me 
Then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay, so what happens? God knows Gideon's afraid. So what does, Gideon, what does God say? Hey, I want you to go sneak into the camp. If you're afraid, take your servant. You're going you're gonna to get some information. So he goes into the camp, and how is it described? They're like locusts. They, I mean, this is vast number. You've seen the movies, haven't you? I mean, can you picture this in your mind? Two little guys sneaking into this huge Mediterranean camp where they're, they're you know, probably the sound of all these guys snoring and then the torches and everything and then, you know, the horses neighing and he, they're sneaking around and they hear these two guys talking, two pagans talking about a dream. This guy's like, I got a dream. It's a really weird dream. This, this like piece of barley, this piece of bread comes tumbling into the camp. Little piece of bread. And with this little piece of bread, what does it do? It knocks over a tent. Now you think about it, it's a weird dream. Okay? And the guy interprets it and says, that's an, that's an omen, okay? That's a, that's a weird thing because that's proof that Gideon's army is going to overtake us. Now, does this guy that has a dream know that there's only 300 men? He probably thinks maybe there's still 32,000. But the point of the dream is something tiny like a piece of bread is going to overtu- you know, overturn this locust of, of valiant warriors. And it's weird because all this is coming through the, the dream of a pagan. Okay, could not God have given Gideon that information? Gideon has to go into the camp. He has to hear it through a pagan. So here's a weird question. I mean, obviously I know the answer to it. Can God sovereignly cause a pagan to have a dream and then orchestrate the event so that Gideon shows up at just the right time to eavesdrop? Is God that meticulously sovereign over all things? Yes. Okay. Here's another question. You should appreciate Gideon. Do we sometimes think that God's servant can only be strong, courageous, and confident instead of weakless, clueless, and unsure of himself? Who does God often pick to lead? Those that are confident in themselves or those that are unsure? And why does God do it? So he can show his power. So Gideon's encouraged. He worships the Lord. He goes back into the, he goes back into the camp and says, here's what we're going to do, guys. He breaks them up into hundreds. Okay, so there's three groups of 100. He says, when I blow the trumpet, what are you going to do? You blow the trumpet and we're going to scream like crazy. Okay? That's the plan. That's the battle plan, okay? Do you see any weapons of warfare? Do you see any getting on horses and charging into the camp? Okay. It's like a little piece of bread tumbling into the camp. If you're one of these hundred men, you're probably thinking, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. You want us to stand there with what? With the trumpet and just shout? They're like locusts down there, and you want us to, to shout? Yeah, and I want you to shout really loud. Okay. Well, let's see. The battle plan that's weak actually works. So let's look at verses 19 through 23. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. 
And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Mohalah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. What are the weapons of the warfare? A trumpet and a jar. Powerful, right? Makes a lot of noise and makes a lot of light. But what happens? What do they do? They blow the trumpets, they smash the jars, they scream, and what do the people do? This huge locust of an army flees. And it even says God caused them to like turn their swords on each other. So Gideon and his 300 men won the battle without fighting the battle. I mean, they, did they fight a literal battle? No, the Lord, they were obedient to the Lord's commands, but the Lord fought the battle for them. They didn't even have to even like go down into the valley. All they had to do was blow a trumpet and smash a, <laughs> smash a jar and scream real loud. Now, obviously in our fight against Satan, in our spiritual warfare, um, God doesn't tell us to go blow a trumpet or go smash a jar. But what are the weapons of our warfare? We do have weapons as Christians. So let's just let's jump out of Judges for a minute and jump to the New Testament real quickly. You know what this is, but I want to just read it to you. What are the weapons of our warfare? The weapons of Gideon's warfare were not conventional weapons. They showed the power of the Lord. They showed the weakness of men so they wouldn't boast in themselves. Okay, so um, Ephesians six ten through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay? That's the weapons of our warfare. Okay, now let's just read the the end of the chapter and see what what happens here. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the water as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Okay, great battle, right? Great victory. Gideon, this clueless, weak, hiding, cowardly, unsure deliverer God uses powerfully with 300 men to rout the Midianites. You think the story's done, right? No more enemies. Well, he has to face three more enemies. Okay? 
Gideon has to fight three more enemies. Let's look at enemy number one. We move into chapter eight. Enemy number one is the tribe of Ephraim, which are Israelites. Okay, let's look at chapter eight, verses one through three. The men of Ephraim said to him, what is this you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Orb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Now what's the deal here? For lack of a better term, Ephraim, the tribe, was acting like a prima donna. And they got in Gideon's face for not consulting them first before Israel decided to fight the Midianites. Why didn't you, why didn't you consult us first so that we can come down and help you? We're offended that you didn't come and ask us. And so they're like all wrapped up in themselves. They're mad at Gideon for not consulting them. They're not submitting to his leadership. And Gideon basically calms them down and says, Hey, listen, guys, you know, you guys are the best. You have the best grapes compared to, to you guys. I'm just this lowly guy. And, you know, God, God won the battle and I'm just this lowly leader. And then th- th- they subside. They're not mad at him anymore. It's like Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The issue with Ephraim was pride and insecurity. They were mad that they were not included. They felt left out. Question for us. Do we often sometimes struggle with pride and insecurity? Can you ever act like, and you would never admit this out loud, do you ever act like a prima donna? The whole world revolves around me. And I've got to have everything the way I want it. And if I'm not consulted or I'm not asked or I'm not, or I'm not in charge, then it's just not the right, the right way of doing things. There's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things, and everything has to be my way. And if it's not, it's wrong. I'm the one in charge. Okay, so the first enemy after defeating the Midianites is he has to come back, and Ephraim gets in his face and says, Hey, Gideon, how come you didn't include us in this? We're, we're all that, and you didn't, you didn't include us. Okay, enemy number two, Succoth and Penuel. Would you love to have those names? All right, so look at verses 4 through 9. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give you bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him, and the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Okay, what's going on? Gideon and his 300 men are exhausted. They've been you know, running around like dogs trying to chase these enemies. And Succoth and Penuel say what? Gideon comes and says, Hey, can we just have some bread? All we want is bread. Can you feed us? And what do these towns, Succoth and Penuel, say? I'm not going to give you bread. What's their issue? They're operating out of fear of not getting involved. We don't want to get involved in your stuff, Gideon. For some reason, 
you don't rout these Midianites fully, there could be some serious repercussions. In addition, they were geographically vulnerable to Midianite attack. So Gideon here, right after this major victory, number one, he's not supported by God's own people who concerned for their status Ephraim or their own security, Succoth and Penuel. So what can we learn from these two? We need to be realistic and prepared that sometimes God's people will let us down due to either pride or fear. We need to learn to keep our pride in check. What did James and John say to Jesus in Mark 10? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. We need not be crippled by fear and insecurity the way that Ephraim was insecure, Succoth and Penuel were insecure. They were trusting in themselves. They weren't trusting in God's leadership. 1 Timothy 6-17, through 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything we need. Now, here's where I get majorly frustrated. Okay? We're going to kind of skip over verses 10 through um, 21 because it's basically this, this, whole, this, this whole issue with these towns, because I want us for the sake of time. When I get to verse 22 is where I get really frustrated. Because what do we think of Gideon so far? What, what do you guys think of Gideon so far? Do you relate to him? He's kind of a wuss, is that what you said? Okay. But at least, okay, so being, being that aside... He at least is what? He's obedient to the Lord. Even though he puts out a couple of fleeces, even though he's not quite sure. Up to this point, he's obedient, right? All the time, what's been his protest all along? I can't do this. I'm weak. I'm powerless. I, there, there's really no way I can do this. And God gets it down to 300 men so that they won't boast. Okay, so you think, hey, everything's going to work out great with Gideon. When you hear the word Gideon, do you think good things or bad things? Or do you not know the Bible? Or have you not read the story enough to know? Let's look and see what happens. This is where it gets frustrating for me. He's been a major... Think about what would happen. You have won the victory with 300 men. Okay, That's kind of like if you remember the year that um, LeBron James played the Golden State Warriors and like half the team was injured and he carried him almost all himself and you know scored fit almost you know 40 points let's say that like you won the nba championship and your whole team was injured and you scored 60 points a game and you were the mvp and you went to seven game series and you won the final shot on the buzzer and it was against all odds and you won you were the underdog how do you think your town and your team are going to feel about you you're the man i'm going to elevate you that's what the people do to Gideon. It's human nature to elevate someone who's a hero. And in the people's eyes, Gideon's a hero. He had 300 men and he routed the enemy. So let's pick up in verse 22. 
Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings, as he requested, was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. That's Gideon. Now Gideon had 70 sons. That's a lot of sons. His own offspring. For he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in the good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Oprah of the Abizurites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Okay, what's the issue? The people want to make him king. We want you to be a dynasty. You rule over us. Your son rule over us. Your grandson rule over us. We want you to be our king. Now, this is before the monarchy, right? Is King David, King Saul in the picture yet? No, we want you to be our king. What does Gideon say? Verse 23, I'm not going to rule over you. My son's not going to rule over you. The Lord's going to rule over you. Okay? Now, Gideon, in a sense, you have to ask the question, is he sincere when he makes that statement? Oh, don't make me king. I don't want to be king. That, that's, that's too much. Let the Lord rule over you. But in a sense, Gideon did act like a king. If you go back and read, he treated his fellow countrymen ruthlessly. He was driven by personal ambition. We didn't read this, but he reacted to the death of his brothers with vengeance. He made ridiculous demands on the people. You go back to verse 20. And then he claimed for himself the symbol of royalty taken from the enemy, the pendants, the amulets, and the purple robes. What was a... God had always set up for Israel what a king was supposed to be. Let's go back to Deuteronomy, because this will help you even when you read about King David, King Solomon, any of the kings of Israel. Back in Deuteronomy, God set up the prototype of what the king of Israel was supposed to be. And Gideon's not really a king per se, but he's acting somewhat like a king. Okay, laws concerning kings. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So there's permission to have a king. It's just got to be God's choice. One from among your brothers you shall set over you as king. 
you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself obsessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in the book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God says you can have a king, but it's got to be my king. He can't rule over you ruthlessly. He can't have many wives, and he can't accumulate for him much silver and gold. Instead, what he needs to do is he needs to have a copy of the Bible next to his throne and he needs to read it every day so that his heart and his mind and his soul is so shaped by God's word that when he rules and he governs, he's governing according to the word of God. Okay, Gideon, go back to Judges, says, I'm not going to be your king, but he does something really weird. Okay, what does he do? He says, give me all your jewelry. Give me all your amulets. Give me all your spoil. And then he makes for himself not an iPod or an iPad, but an ephod. Okay, and you're like, what's an ephod? Okay, look at verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. He made an ephod. What's an ephod? Okay. In ephod, if you go back to Exodus chapters 28 and Exodus chapter 39, the ephod was part of the high priest attire that was made of costly stones, breastplate attached with 12 precious stones embedded in four rows representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It was the priestly garment. Now, one thing I said last week, do you remember? Who is markedly absent from the book of Judges? Who's not showing up doing what they're supposed to do? You guys remember? The Levitical priest, the Levite priest. The priests are absent. And all of a sudden, Gideon makes for himself a priestly garment. Question, was Gideon a Levite priest? Did he have any business making an ephod? Do you know when the ephod was worn? The ephod was worn by the priest on the Day of Atonement when he would go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifices for the people. Do you have any mention of the Holy of Holies here? Do you have any mention of the Ark of the Covenant, Tabernacle? None of that stuff's going on. So why in the world does Gideon make an ephod? Well, the question, why would the priest wear an ephod? Okay, what was the other purpose of wearing an ephod? of the high priest. Numbers 27, 21 tells us that. This is the Levitical high priest. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him in the whole congregation. So there was the Urim and the Thummim, which don't ask me what those were, something that in ancient Israel that were used by the priest to help determine the will of God. When he wore the priestly garment, he was basically 
the conduit for God's direction to the people. What was Gideon's motivation in taking the place of the priest and creating his own ephod? We really don't know, but here's a guess. It could be that pride went to his head in the defeat of the Midianites with such a small army of 300 that now he wants to, I'm not going to be a king, but I will be a channel of God's guidance by wearing an ephod for the people. In other words, he wanted more than what God had given him. What had God given him? Victory with 300 men. What did did Gideon say? That's not enough. I won't be your king, but I will take your garments, the priest, the, 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 the purple robe, and I'll... You know, I won't act like a king, but I'm going to act like a king. I'm not going to have the title of king, but I'm going to act like a priest and I'm going to act like a king. And look at the thing that happens. Look at verse 27. What did this ephod do? All Israel, my translation says whore after it. Does yours say prostituted themselves after it or okay. harloted after it? It became a snare to Gideon and to his family. What's a snare? Something that traps you up. Okay. So what happened to Gideon? He started out so well, didn't he? I mean, he was listening to the Lord. He was living in humility. He was following. But what happened at the end of his life? It went to his head. And he lived a polygamous lifestyle of idolatry toward the end of his life. And I'm going to give you a hint. Well, three ironies. Look at verse 27. We talked about that. It became a snare. Three ironies. Number one, okay, what does it say there in verse 28? The land had rest for 40 years. That's a long time. Although the land is at rest for 40 years from its enemies, what's Israel doing? Is Israel at rest with God? Is Israel at peace with God? No, they're living in idolatry. Okay. Number two, Gideon commits polygamy and has many wives and concubines. How many kids does he have? Seventy sons. And his concubine bore him a son. So the son of a concubine. We're going to look at this next week. The son of a concubine. What's a concubine? A harlot, a mistress, a, a side girl. Something. I mean, not one of his many wives, but somebody else, whatever you want to call it. What does he name his son? You guys look at it. Look at verse 31. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And what did he call his son? Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? My father is king. That should hit you. (laughs) What did Gideon say? Oh, I'm not going to be your king. My son's not going to be your king. My grandson's not going to be your king. But when I have a son born by a concubine, I'm going to name him my dad is king. Now you can read ahead next week to see how Abimelech is a wicked man. And he does act like a ruthless king. So, in retrospect, did Gideon really want to be king after all? So let's look at four observations from these chapters as we bring things to a close tonight. And we may have time for questions. We'll see. Number one, these are just some observations. These are bringing everything to a close. If anything positive or successful will happen in Israel, then it will be by His grace alone and not their merit or worthiness. Okay? 
nothing of merit or worth in Israel is causing God to do what he's doing. God's doing it because God is choosing to do it. How does God save us? Is it because of our worth or our our, our merit? Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Titus 3, 4 through 7, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Anything that happens in Israel is because of God's sovereign grace. Not because they deserve it, not because they're, wor- they're worthy, not because there's merit. Same thing with us. Do we deserve salvation? No. Is there anything worthy in us? No. God chooses to save us and love us and, and rescue us simply because it's His sovereign grace to do so. Okay, number two. With God on their side, no enemy is invincible, but victory is inevitable. Okay, how many times, what did God say? I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Was God with them? And God even says, I'm going to get the, the, the army down to 300 men. I am with you to the end. Okay, what does God say to us? Some encouraging words. Romans eight thirty one through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Okay, observation, conclusion number three. Sometimes God's people lack trust in His clear written word and His past faithfulness. As a result, they test God and try to manipulate Him in order to avoid obedience. What did did Gideon do with the fleece? I'm going to test God on this even though I have clear instructions. God has been faithful to you in the past and God has given you His written word and that should be enough to guarantee for us future future faithfulness by God. We don't need to avoid obedience by trying to test Him. And then here's number four. Those in leadership often face the real temptation to elevate personal ambition above God's agenda. That's dangerous in any leader especially spiritual leader, pastor, elder, deacon, when you put personal ambition above God's agenda, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's something what Gideon did, his personal agenda. So two final questions. They're kind of open-ended. First one is, how can a godly person go downhill so quickly? I, I, I get so frustrated with the story of Gideon because I like the story. But then I get to the ephod part, and I'm like, Gideon, what's up? Why, you started out so well, and you end so bad. And it just kind of ends that way. It's like, okay, he, they hoard after the ephod. He had a concubine. My, my God is king. It's like, well, they didn't really live happily ever after. Yeah, there's 40 years of peace, but, but Gideon, you're just, you went downhill so quickly. And then the ultimate question we probably come back to every week, why does Israel keep falling into idolatry in light of God's kindness time after time after time? What's the pattern? Idolatry. Oppression. They cry out. God delivers them. What happens? They get back into idolatry. They cry out. 
God delivers them. The cycle, you think, God, when are you going to stop it? When are you going to stop being patient? When are you going to stop being kind? Okay, so Romans 2.4 tells us this. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to keep on sending your heart out because there's no consequences? Is that what the Bible says? Making sure you're paying attention. No, it says it's meant to lead you to repentance. Okay, so God's kindness in the life of Israel is always to lead them to repentance, but they don't. Thus, we got through three chapters tonight of Judges in the story of Gideon. Are there any questions, comments, or slide remarks as we conclude our... We've got six minutes. you guys have any questions? Observations? Questions? Craziness? You guys say that every week when we come out here of Judges. I told you it's the most weird... Crazy, I did say it was kind of crazy graphic book in the Bible. Nothing? You guys have nothing? Gideon probably could have been a good ruler if he really adhered to God's word and stayed with him. Yeah. For those of you that are watching on Facebook, he said Gideon um, could have been a really good ruler if he had stayed with God's word. Um, now, when we say ruler, do you mean king or do you mean judge? Whichever God wanted, okay. These judges were only temporary deliverers that gave them military victory. It was never meant to be a permanent kingship at this point in time. Um, but that's what they wanted to make Gideon. The point you're, I think you're saying, Jerry, is that Gideon could have, it could have been different for Gideon had he not been ta- taken over by pride or ambition and wanting to let that go to his head and create the ephod if he would have just stopped and said, you know what, let me go back to my roots where I was this clueless, weak, bumbling guy that didn't have all together and, and let, me, let me boast in my humility or boast in my cluelessness and let God work that way, he would have been a better, a better leader. Okay, good. Anything else? So would it have worked the opposite if there would have been the 32,000? Then it's like a whole big army, and Gideon, yeah, he may be the general of them, but he's not the one taking all that because there's a whole bunch of them. I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, as opposed to 300, because then they lifted him up. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. The question is, would it have been different if they would have won with the 32,000? They wouldn't have elevated Gideon into. Well, here's, but but God tells them in verse 2. The reason I'm doing, of chapter 7, the reason I'm doing this is so it won't go to your head. If you had 32,000, now that's corporately to the nation of Israel, but it's also to Gideon. What should Gideon have heard? It should not go to your head. Even if, even with the 300, it should not go to your head. And it went to his head. So the point is, regardless, here's the point. Anytime you experience a level of success or a level of fruitfulness, or a level of good, there's always the temptation to say, look what I did, and to want more. Am I right on that? There's always an ambition. And you've got to check yourself and say, let me just show you my favorite passage. This is in closing. John chapter 3. John the Baptist, his disciples are getting mad that everybody's going to Jesus for getting, for getting baptized, and John the Baptist's disciples come to John the Baptist and say, Hey, man, we're losing market share. All, the, all, all your people are getting lost, and they're going over to get baptized by this Jesus guy, and you baptize Jesus. What gives? 
And then John the Baptist says this in John chapter 3, verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And then down in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. If there's anything that you have, talent-wise, ability-wise, work-wise, riches, wealth, whatever, it's because God has given it to you. And as such, you need to recognize that and realize everything's a gift from God. You're humbled by that. You don't let it go to your head. And you boast in Him, not in your abilities. But what's the temptation for us? We always want more than what God's given us. And that's what Gideon, he wanted more than what God had given him. And success had gone to his head. So I don't know. I mean, you're, you're, you're asking me to answer a counterfactual of what would or wouldn't happen, but I know you're... Yeah, yeah, and we don't know what would have happened. We just know what did happen with Gideon in the victory. It went to his head. Okay. 